morning, everybody. I wasn't in here at the beginning of the service, so maybe I shouldn't try to correct what may not have been said. But <clears throat> the early service appreciated me sharing with them that I'd been really mistreated this morning um, by two other staff pastors who are wearing suits. Um, and they're claiming that we agreed we were all going to wear suits because it was Easter. I'm denying it completely. And so anyway, I'm <coughs> basically not a Christian, at least according to them. So <coughs> scripture today, John's Gospel, chapter 20, the last two verses of that chapter <coughs> verses 30 and <clears throat> 31. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in or through his name. <clears throat> there are three things that I want us to see here in this passage of Scripture today, Easter Sunday. <clears throat> this occurred, by the way, um, this statement in the 40 days near the end of the 40 days that Jesus showed himself to the disciples before he ascended into heaven. And then that was 10 days before the day of Pentecost. And so <clears throat> the following chapter records the meeting that Jesus had with uh, most of the disciples <clears throat> on the seashore. And this is when he, I guess you'd say, I think we look at it, restored publicly Peter um, when he asked him, you know, do you love me more than these and so forth. <clears throat> but this is, so this is a uh, one chapter before the final chapter summary of all the Gospel of John. And really, we can truthfully say, if there's ever a verse that would encapsulate the whole of the Bible and John's gospel, it's these two verses. That these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. By believing, you might have life through his name. So there are three things here that I want us to look at regarding the evidence upon which God demands that we believe. I have thought often there's a sense in which a God is making a case to us in his word. He reveals himself. He reveals us. He tells us what we don't know and couldn't know about him. He also tells us what we really don't know 
regarding the depth of what's the matter with us. The Bible is every bit as much a revelation of our problem as it is of God and of His plan to deal with the estrangement between us. We note then that in God trying to make His case, we are in a sense um, in an awkward position of being members, really, we're members of a jury almost, hearing evidence, but the evidence is, much of it is against us. And then he calls on us to vote against ourselves. He calls on us to vote to convict ourselves. But only if we'll do that, with all the evidence that he's given us, is there a way out of the awful situation that we find ourselves in as a human race, alienated from God? So, first of all, there's surplus evidence. It says here that much of what Jesus did, in fact, we could say the majority of what Jesus did is not in the Scripture. He did so much, John says in the next chapter, that if everything he did were to be written down, he said, I suppose the world itself couldn't hold the books so as packed as the three years of ministry that we see Jesus carrying out it's a minuscule amount of what he did and taught and the the New American Standard Bible uses the word often they'll translate the word miracle they'll translate it with these two words attesting works or verifying works proof these deeds that jesus did were meant to convince us of who he was and therefore what he could do about our estranged state so there's surplus evidence there's a massive amount of evidence that god didn't even include in this book but the second thing <clears throat> there is sufficient evidence said so, but these are written and a thought comes to me regarding this sufficient evidence it's also we could use another term it's accountable evidence in other words i do not know obviously everything that god has written in his word and we know it's a fraction of god's massive understanding that's in this word i can't understand all of it i can't explain all of it and there are varying amounts levels let's say of knowledge that we all have and they differ as far as spiritual light but we can say this not everyone knows all that they could know or all that the person next to them knows but everyone knows enough we know enough and in this sense god never because he's good 
He never, ever holds us accountable for what we could not know. Now, if we pass up knowledge and take no advantage of the gospel message, that's on us for what we could have known. But what we do to our circumstances, raised, raised in Christian homes or not, know something about God or not, he pays attention to what I'm doing as far as walking in what light I do have. And he makes it clear here that there's enough. Therefore, I'm accountable to do something with what he has, what light he has shed on my path. None of us then you know, can take refuge that, well, I need, I need to learn a whole lot more. Yeah, we probably do. But everyone knows, I believe, because of the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit, prevenient grace that's shed to every soul, we know, if we don't know a theological term or we can't recite two of the books of the Bible, it doesn't matter. We know something Somehow we have a standard of what ought to be so that we have at least a dim sense. Things in here aren't what they ought to be. I know they're not what they ought to be. We grope after, Paul said, we grope after God. There's a sense that something has gone terribly wrong in this world and that somehow there, there is a terrible falling short in our own hearts and lives and in our interactions with others, our families, whatever. Something's wrong. And there is also a, a deep, somewhat um, mysterious sense of our hearts that Something needs to be done somewhere. Take just a simple matter, and I'm not talking about going to the rec center and all that, but the New Year's resolutions we all make, all kinds of resolutions. I'm gonna, it, it's, it, it assumes the need for improvement. Do you understand me? I don't know of anybody that says, I want to get in more fights with my wife and I'm going to set that goal and that's my resolution. I'm going to get drunker more often. I'm going to start embezzling more at work. Nobody does that. The assumption is, even if it is just working out or not eating as much ice cream, it's assumed I need to do better. Something needs to be better. Which also assumes a sense that things aren't what they ought to be. There's a, it's dim, maybe, but there is a fundamental sense that God gives to us. This is not the way things ought to be. There's sufficient then 
enough evidence. And God's written it down in a book so that I could read it. Just prior to this statement that John makes, you have the occasion where Thomas, the doubter we call him, was not present when Jesus appeared a week earlier to the rest of the disciples, showed them his, the nail prints in his hands and his feet, and the spear in his side, scar from that, and he said he wasn't there. And they told him, what, Jesus, he's alive. He rose from the dead. We know it. We saw this. He said, you know, we all know what he said. If I put my finger, until I put my finger into the nail prints, my hand into his side, I like the English Standard Version. It says it with force. I will never believe. A week later, Jesus appeared to him. And let Thomas know that even with Jesus gone, he heard him. <laughs> and he said, reach hither your hand and put your finger in my nail prints and put your hand in my side. And he says, stop being unbelieving and be believing is what the language is. And Thomas goes to his knees and he says, My Lord and my God. And what did Jesus say? He said, Have you believed? He said, Blessed are you, but have you believed because you saw? Blessed are those who have not seen but believed. That's us. I wasn't there. But what is Jesus telling us? The evidence is so clear and so carefully written and preserved in his wonderful word that it's on my hands, I'm accountable for it, I cannot plead my way out of it, I'm accountable. I know it. I don't want to get too far off into another scripture, but it's an interesting scripture Peter says Essentially, if you have the light and you understand it and you return to darkness, he said you'd have been better off if you'd never known it in the first place. That's the accountability that God holds us to once, in a sense, the gospel ruins us as far as pleading innocent. Once I know I know. And God has a hook in me that he can work on. And I can't get away from it. If we have the privilege of being raised in a Christian home, you can't get away from it. You can resist it. It's not irresistible. But I can't shun it from my mind. You simply can't do it. God's light has tentacles. <laughs> it attaches itself. And it's, it's virtually impossible to shake. He gives me sufficient evidence on which to believe. Then, there's also sustaining evidence, which we'll look at in a moment. Because the passage that follows here, the words that follow, 
are that we believe, we have enough evidence, believing that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, when he said he's the Christ, what does that word mean? Well, it's sometimes translated Messiah, or it's translated the appointed or anointed one. It's, it's the being, the second person of the Trinity, selected by the Father as the only access to sinful humanity that we can approach God through. Here's what we have to remember. In the blessing, untold blessing, we can't describe it, the blessing of a offended God selecting His own Son as a mediator between sinful man and holy God, paying the penalty for sin, which is death, and interposing that on my behalf, providing for forgiveness. That God, in His great mercy, appointed someone <laughs> to be His representative to us and our representative to Him. He's a mediator. There is no describing the blessed gift that He gives. But we also have to remember there isn't any other way to go. I can't tell you how grateful I am that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever is believing in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The point being, there is no other way than Jesus. We don't have a choice. We don't have different ways to the Father. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father unless through me. Well, other religions, they seem sincere. They may have some good ethical uh, concepts. Um, some of the cults, they may live fairly decent, I guess, and they promote good things. But they're another way, and there is no other way. It's through the appointed one. And listen, if the offended being appoints one mediator opening the door for the offenders to receive a pardon and forgiveness and reconciliation and fellowship. It is unthinkable, should be, that the offenders would say, I'll choose a different way to come to you and think he'll put up with that. And think that God would say, well, yeah, that's okay. If you don't like the Jesus, if come on. This is the only way. He is the only way. If we believe, there's some verbs here. There's some action words. There's something I'm supposed to do. Now, 
let me do my best to remind us that believing is a wide word. It is not simply intellectual assent. It is not simply a... A.W. Tozer put it this way. Too many people, instead of truly believing in Jesus Christ as their only hope and their only Savior and their almighty God and their Master, he said, rather, we believe in what he called a religious syllogism. Simply a logical little thing. If A is true and B is true, then C's got to be true. Well, Jesus died for sinners. I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus. I'm saved. That's not what the word believe here ever means. It's a full, heart deep. I cast myself on Jesus Christ as the only one and the only way. And he is my master and my Lord, even unto death. I trust him. I'll obey him. Walk with him. This is what it means to believe. And the interesting thing, and also the authoritative thing. Believe shows up twice. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. And that by believing, we have life through His name. There are three words here having to do with action. Two of them believe. They're both present tense, continuous tense, in other words, that we continually believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by continuing to believe, we are having, we're continually having life through Him. That is not then this once and done simple little believing a syllogism and I'm saved. This is a life. This is walking with Jesus Christ as my Lord, as my Savior, as my Master. I am His servant. Best place we can be. Most home to us because that's what we're created to be is to serve God we're we're servants we might not like that but that's what we are I am here to take orders it doesn't matter and listen there are times when God speaks to all of us I know that and when he puts his finger on something when he corrects us when he chastens us when he speaks to us there's a sense in which I think a lot of, of evangelical religion today is so dependent on emotions and on feelings. Let me just say, some time ago, I was thinking, as I rarely do, but I was thinking pessimistically. You know... Things aren't like they were when I started in the ministry. It seems people's hearts are harder. 
ears are more dull. We're, we're, we have seen the Christian veneer of our American culture stripped away. We all know, I think, we all know that church attendance is continuing to go down. Thorough Christians, it seems, become fewer and fewer. Now, you can look at all that and get your eye. That can be like Peter. You can look at the storms and get your eyes off of Jesus. You start to sink. And some time ago, I was thinking, you know, it just seems like it, it, it's such a slog. It's like going through waist-deep mud to try to minister in this day. And I just opened up Scripture, first, the first word that I, my eyes landed on um, in turning to where I was headed was the book of James. And it just said, be steadfast okay be steadfast I read that and let me just be as honest I didn't feel like being steadfast I just didn't have I I thought why (laughs) but right on the heels of that temptation was That's what, uh, I know God spoke that to me this morning because that's what I've been thinking. That's what I was just praying about to Him. Wondering what the day we're in, just in general. You watch the country and everything. Be steadfast. I didn't feel like being steadfast. Then I decided about two seconds after that, He told you to. (laughs) That's enough. I don't need to feel good. I don't need to feel some kind of welling up fuzzies. I'm a soldier. I just got an order from the captain of the army, the Lord of hosts. That's enough. (laughs) And you know what? As you square your shoulders and you say, all right, I am the buck private I don't run things around here. In this kingdom, he's in charge. He died for me. And no one, he says, none of you, have resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You know know what I mean? I'm sitting in a recliner in a heated, air-conditioned, carpeted home in the United States, three cars or I don't know what in the, gra- in the driveway, and I got it rough. So when the general <laughs> says, here's what I want you to go, here's what I want you to do, that's your order. I need to take it that way. And the instant you do that, you feel good. You don't get it ahead of time. But it's like God just pats us on the shoulder. Listen, you did right. I ordered you, and you recognized it as that, and you didn't dither over it, and you did it. You said, all right. Proverbs says if we rule our spirits, we're greater than the general who g- gains a reputation for taking a walled city. 
I have, I'm a soldier in God's kingdom. I'm a servant in his household. So we do it. We can't ever reverse that role. I work for God. I do his bidding. And he owes me, and I'm, and I'm not trying to picture God as a hard-nosed, kind of difficult to deal with. But listen, he doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe me anything. He, he spread his arms and he died for me. He took, he took all the way from heaven down, it says, among us to die for us so that he might free us from the fear of sin and death to which we've been in slavery all our lives. He's not then, he is not my cruise planner. He's not my, um, you know, vacation planner. His job isn't then. His job isn't to necessarily make me feel appreciated. <laughs> he says, you do this. And Jesus seems, and again, Jesus seems when he speaks of this, he said, if the servant, he said, if your servant is working in the field all day and he comes in at night, he said, does the master tell him to sit down at the table and I'll fix you a meal? He said, no. He said, the servant, still, he worked all day? Okay. His job's not done. He should fix the meal for the master. Then he sits down and eats. And then Jesus said, you need to remember. He's not being mean. But he said, he, you need to remember. You're all unprofitable servants. He lost money on us. We're a bad investment. We've got to, we've got to never let slip. God's my God. He's my authority. And he is the best, kindest boss we've ever, ever had or could have. But he's my boss. There's enough evidence then for us to be believing. And as we continue believing, we then continue having life. This is an ongoing walk with God. But it's sustaining evidence. The, the evidence continues to grow. I can trust Jesus. I can trust him with my heart. I can trust him with my eternity. I can trust him with my soul. I can trust him. There's that old hymn, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. It grows deeper, stronger, brighter as we keep on believing. And there's more and more evidence on which to believe. Polycarp, surely everyone here knows and talks about him every day. Polycarp, in 
very, very late first or early second century, more likely, <coughs> who it's thought heard St. John. But he was 86 years old. And he was arrested and he, was in, he ended up martyred. But they ordered him, and then that day, um, Jesus was considered, any other king was considered a rival to Caesar. And the Romans were at least wide in their inclusion. You can believe in Jesus if you want. You can believe in thousands of other gods. We don't care. It's just that when we have the annual worship of the emperor in your local area, you are to offer part of the sacrifice and be a part of that. And then it will, you will either maybe get a written or a verbal certificate that you participated in the emperor worship, so you're okay. Christians couldn't do that because they served one Lord. And so then they were accused not only of irreligion, but they were accused of sedition. It was heresy. It was treason. So they called on Polycarp to recant. And his reply, which I can't quote completely, but was simply this, for all these decades... I've walked with Jesus. He's never, ever failed me. And the evidence has built up and built up that I can trust him. Why would I ever consider recanting, retracting my faith? Why would I do that? There's a sustaining evidence the longer we walk with God that I can trust him. And this Easter, this day, this is why, by the way, we gather on Sunday to worship. Worship shifted from the Sabbath, Saturday, to Sunday. Because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. And early, early on, sometimes we still do it, Easter time, but this quiet early morning pre-dawn greeting when Christians would gather before on that day the first day of the week they had to go to work and so forth they didn't have Sunday off they would greet one another he is risen and the reply he is risen indeed that was the core that's the core he's alive he's risen and in rising, he said this. I love the strength of these words. Hebrews 2. He partook of our flesh and blood and tasted death for every person, every one of us, so that we wouldn't have to. And he said, in so doing, this partaking, through death, he destroyed him who has power of death, even the devil. Now the death that Jesus died and rose from was, yes, physical, 
But we know that Jesus did not go to the cross just to keep me from physically dying because we're all dying. So what death is he talking about? It's not physical death, which is, we could say, merely the separation of this tent from my spirit. It is the separation that Jesus even experienced on the cross in the separation from the Father. That's the death that Jesus died to destroy the, the Father, the author of death, Satan. So what's today? I don't ever mean to be misunderstood that the resurrection is no big deal. We're grateful every time we stand with a Christian family and they've laid to rest one of their saints. We know we will see them again. We know that they will receive a new body. God will give them a never-dying glorified body. Yes, we're grateful for the resurrection from physical decay. But that's not the greatest victory. The greatest victory is the victory over spiritual death. That the one who's able to cunningly draw me into sin and spring the trap on me and I'm separated from God. He's been destroyed. And by coming out of the grave, love revelation, he has, when he left the abode of the dead, Satan's kingdom, Jesus has the keys of death and hell. He owns the place. He destroyed Satan and his entire capital and his power. That's the victory that we have today. That is why, whether it's being faced with deep turmoil, deep trials, terrible temptations, all of the things that we can face, we can face those because I know Jesus won the victory and He is with me. This is why He said, greatest, some of the greatest words He could have said in the Great Commission, go into all the world, teach them to keep my word. And the closing statement, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Jesus is with us today. For us, each one of us, then, if we haven't, if we haven't put our faith in Jesus and are believing, continuing to believe, there's enough evidence, I'm accountable. We're going to just have a short word of prayer and then be led in music. And while the musicians are leading us, if there, there is no better day, I can't think of one, than Easter Sunday. That if I am not where I should be with God, I can kneel at a place here and pray. Before I leave here and 
you know, go out in the parking lot and start worrying about the dinner and where, what restaurant you're going to, and you dissipate God's spirit tugging at your heart. So while we listen to the music, I want us to prayerfully let God search our own hearts. If there are some things we need to do business with God about, this is not a magical place, but it's a good place to come and kneel, talk to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do not know hearts. We can't know each other's hearts, but you are the heart-knowing God. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that has never put their faith in you, or did maybe in some shallow way, but we know in our hearts things aren't what they ought to be, I pray that you would help us move on the evidence we have because we're accountable for it. Tug at our hearts, point out what you want us to do. In Christ's name, amen.